For the 30 and more years that I have been on the faculty at UCLA, every Cinco de Mayo, I have seen fraternity parties with people wearing outrageously huge straw sombreros and colorful sarape vests, getting drunk and shouting, Happy Cinco de Mayo! I am shocked and at times disgusted at these Drinco de Mayo events. Today, we're going to take this opportunity to step back and engage in a conversation about understanding what cultural appropriation is and its significance. Most importantly, we'll discuss how we can use our voices to create the change we need to stop the cultural appropriation when we see it. Welcome to Gente and Health, a podcast by the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture. I'm the center's director, David Hayes Bautista, the old Chicano professor. This podcast is an extension of the research we have been a part of for many years. Join us as we discuss the state of Latinos and as we unearth the voices of our gente and health. Today we have Randy Lopez, a second-generation Chicana pre-med student from the Inland Empire of Southern California. She is motivated to empower other first-generation community college students and educate others about the importance of providing accessible and equitable health care that is culturally appropriate. She is a CESLAC research assistant, UCLA alumni, and a writer for this podcast. Today, she'll talk about cultural appropriation in the age of social media. We also have Angeles Almaraz, a first-generation pre-med student from the big Central Valley of California. Her upbringing informs her passion for medicine and social equity and fuels her work with pre-health students and Latinx and undocumented communities. She is motivated to bridge access to higher education, healthcare, and social services to the communities that raised and inspired her. She is a UCLA alumni and is enrolled in the Enhanced Post-Baccalaureate Program at Charles Drew University. She is currently a MedPEP mentor, the co-founder of UndocuMedPEP, a quality improvement assistant at a nonprofit clinic in Los Angeles, and a project coordinator for pre-health dreamers as she continues working with undocumented DACA TPS pre-health students. I was born in Los Angeles, oh, 75 years ago, and I remember hearing vaguely about Cinco de Mayo events when I was growing up, uh, and I was raised in the Central Valley. It wasn't until I got to the university campuses that suddenly I began to see Cinco de Mayo events as particularly practiced by fraternities. And it, they usually consisted of people wearing these great big, huge, silly straw hats, uh, putting on a sarape, maybe wearing huaraches, and just getting horribly drunk. Uh, sometimes uh, they would do things such as have uh, tortilla tossing contests. Uh, I remember one time they had a party that had to do with illegals crawling under the, the border fence. So you had to apparently crawl under some fence to get into the party. Uh, they thought it was a lot of fun. I thought this was horrible. I thought this was disgusting. These sorts of things where people take what they think is Latino and just kind of toss it around, make fun of it, is what we could call cultural appropriation. There are a lot of examples of this. I don't know if you've seen Santa Barbara. That was originally founded as a presidial town in 1785. In 1925, when Latinos were temporarily a minority in California, they had a big earthquake and the city of Santa Barbara fell down. And they were going to rebuild it, but the city fathers decided to make kind of a tourist attraction. Everything had to look like old Spanish California. And so there was an architectural appropriation. 
I remember growing up and seeing these, they were called Spanish Revival. And then I'd go to Mexico and look and say, well, this doesn't look like that. What do they mean, Spanish Revival? Uh, but it was their idea of what Latinos do. So we need to understand that if there's something that is an, uh, an expression of a group of people, and we understand it and we appreciate it, somebody else comes along, just sees the surface, takes the surface and puts their own meaning on it, that is a appropriation. It doesn't have to be like that. There are times when you can have actually appreciation where somebody sees something happening or, and wants to understand what is this history, what is the context, what does this mean to this group of people, and join in with that. That's more of appreciation. I'll have to admit, in our youth, I'm talking about up at Berkeley in the early 70s, we did our own bit of cultural appropriation when we reinvented where we brought Cinco de Mayo, our version, to UC Berkeley. So what was Cinco de Mayo? It was a salsa concert at the Greek theater. Now, looking back, I mean, we were trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? We didn't know the history of Cinco de Mayo, but we, you know, took salsa music. Now, I love salsa music. It didn't have a lot to do with the original Cinco de Mayo, and we could not put the things together. So, we still have had, you know, a salsa concert at the Greek Theater at Berkeley. So in a way, we were sort of guilty of some of that as well. But we are going to talk about some examples of this appropriation versus appreciation versus modification. Because cultures don't stand still. They move all the time. So with that, I'd like to turn to Brandy Lopez. And uh, Brandy, why don't we just chat a little bit about some of your experiences, your perspectives on cultural appropriation. Great. Thank you, Professor. In the age of social media, in the age where we have information and news available as it happens, we often find ourselves on social media with newer and newer generations having their own experiences and having their own stories associated with cultural appropriation. We are often shocked by the blatant and deliberate incidents or patterns of cultural appropriation that we see. Most of us do have a vague definition of what we all consider appropriation. However, as most people I know define it, it's the action of selecting certain clothing, items, or mimicking bodily features of a culture or ethnic group, often a marginalized group, that is not the own of the person who is appropriating. And it is used for personal benefit without the respect or understanding of the significance of the item or the culture itself. And this is often used to be belittled as a trend or something for their own notoriety, unfortunately. And some examples of this on social media, such as Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, or Facebook, uh, are brown facing, black fishing, and fox eye. For those of us not familiar with what brown facing and black fishing are, they're variations of modern day blackface. There are persons who edit their photos or edit their videos and where they change their physical attributes such as skin color. They'll use heavy uh, photo filters or heavy makeup, dark colored make darker colored makeup, um, excessive spray tan, or get creative with lighting and to appear of a different ethnic group or to appear black. And oftentimes they'll change into clothing or wear jewelry that is popular in Black culture or Latinx culture in order to pass 
for certain ethnic groups in certain photos. And unfortunately, their persons also make videos where they adopt Spanish-speaking accents while making videos to appear humorous or forever unfortunate reason. And in regards to these trends, it's unfortunate how the persons, the influencers, or persons, other persons engaging in these so-called trends don't understand that there's a far greater significance because when persons are adopting like certain hairstyles or certain clothing, they don't realize persons from certain marginalized groups who wear specific clothing or have specific hairstyles have been deemed unprofessional or have been deemed undesirable by society. And the persons appropriating these types of trends or features don't really understand that that further seeks to marginalize these communities. And unfortunately, cultural appropriation doesn't just stop at social media. It also goes into the global market. You have everything from cookware to clothing that is appropriated and available for purchase online in various stores. And example of this is in fast fashion and high fashion. Fast fashion corporations are in a sense, taking textile and garment patterns from traditional clothing such as huipiles and making them for cheap and selling them for cheap, taking away business and support from indigenous and people of color owned businesses. Unfortunately, most of the time when influencers or corporations or companies or whomever is caught appropriating cultures, they often go to phrases, I wasn't appropriating, I was appreciating the culture. But what is the difference between culture appropriation and appreciation? Well, first off, there's a big difference in looking at the intention of what the person or corporation was intending to do, and also looking at what the actual definition of appreciation is. When in attempt to appreciate a culture, you do so by honoring and respecting the culture and its practices in order to further your own knowledge and understanding of the culture. Because most of the time when persons just like take what they want from a certain culture because they think it's cool or because it's like different and they want to do it and they want to take a certain either clothing or jewelry from a certain uh, ethnic group or culture and do what they want for their personal benefit, that's not appreciating the culture. Brandy, if I can just, you're sparking off some thoughts. You know, it strikes me there's a very, oh, there may be the big overlap between sort of stereotyping and cultural appropriation. I mean, when I was growing up in the 50s, there was, in a cartoon series, had a sidekick who was a little burro that always spoke with a Mexican accent. His name was Baba Louie. Now, if you know the uh, history of African song in Cuba. I mean, that was a sacred song, Babalu. But now it's been appropriated into this little funny so-called humorous burro who was always getting into trouble. People were accustomed to looking for somebody that had the big sombrero and uh, sarape and guns. So it's like they take a stereotype even and then just take it on for their own means. So I, it's interesting. I, I didn't realize how much of an overlap there is between stereotyping and cultural appropriation. Because they still do it today for Cinco de Mayo. The big sombrero, sarape, happy Cinco de Mayo, and then they throw up. Yeah, and something to import, important to note with that 
is that when certain influencers or corporations get caught culturally appropriating and pers and their following and the public view wants to, in a sense, cancel them, engage in cancel culture by either boycotting their products or by unfollowing them on social media or by sharing negative sentiment with uh, the public view. It's important to note that at the end of the day, we really want to change the conversation from instead of canceling someone, we want to, in a sense, remediate what has happened, what damage was caused. How can this corporation, this person mend the situation and in the future not engage in the action that they did? And how can we change the conversation to where we make more people aware about culture appropriation, its significance, and to even engage in deeper conversations with their friends, their partners, their community members, so that we're all more aware and we can hopefully create an equitable world for all of us to where we're more aware of what we do, we're more aware of our intention and our values at the end of the day. I'm wondering if perhaps we might want to get to Ankeles to have her to talk about the issue of having meaningful discussions when you run across this. Um, professors, you were talking about you know, the relevance or the relatedness of stereotypes and um, cultural appropriation, I think it's really important to highlight how much damage that really causes and how culturally appropriating something and it stemming from a stereotype really negates and silences and erases a lot of that culture or the meaning behind um, the specific thing that's being uh, appropriated. And I think uh, one thing I, for Brandy and for myself, um, I think as you delve into higher education institutions and it's, it almost gets worse and it adds to the microaggressions and all the isms we already experience. Well, I see this in research, uh, for example, particularly in healthcare, there's this thing called cultural competency that people are supposed to get trained in. And basically what people did, Anglo anthropologists in the 1940s, 1950s, working in South Texas, Northern New Mexico, Colorado, rural California, viewed Mexicans, Latinos as quaint, uh, traditional folkloric societies. So they wrote all these books about Madreojo and Pacho use of yerbas and everything else, which by the way, we do okay. Uh, but it's not everything we do, but that's all they saw because it was exotic. And they saw what they considered to be particularly Latino values, such as passiveness, fatalistic, you know, si Dios quiere, uh, all this stuff. So they created a sort of stereotype of Latinos, which then gets introduced as, now these are the theoretical models. So you can measure how passive Latinos are, how fatalistic they are, how anti-scientific they are, as opposed to someone who is active, and read science and believe science, et cetera, is future oriented. And so it gets baked into the research. So people are actually talking about they measure. I'm uh, reviewing a paper right now that's trying to still measure how assimilated are Latinos. I think you got to be crazy. It's that was a, a cultural appropriation taken into science. I realized this as an undergraduate at Berkeley when I read this book. It's called Health in the Mexican-American Culture. And I remember when I first began to read it, it was written by an anthropologist, a medical anthropologist. And at first I felt a sense of almost uh, vindication because she talked about things my mom did, you know, the empachos and the mal de ojo and everything else. Then when I finished the book, I was really unsatisfied and I realized, but she didn't 
this anthropologist didn't talk about the other stuff my mom did, such as getting us involved in the polio vaccine trials. I had braces on my teeth, et cetera. Like that was missing. All she focused on is just this one piece, basically appropriated. I didn't have the words at that time, but basically just appropriated the quaint folkloric stuff. I guess it got her tenure uh, and just missed everything else. So that's, it actually is in the classroom and in the research labs. We could call it basically cultural appropriation. As you both encountered different instances of cultural appropriation as you went on in higher education and in life, did y'all ever approach someone and try to engage them in a discussion about what they were doing? From a research? Oh, go ahead, Angeles. Ooh, for me, this one gets a little tricky. Um, I think for me, when I first began to like finally put the like pin a word to it and recognize that what was happening was appropriation. At first it was from the jump. Yes, let's talk about it. Let's engage in a conversation. Let me share with you what I know and kind of um, hope that you understand why what you're doing is wrong. Um, and I think as these experiences accumulated, it became a more complex decision when engaging in that conversation you think about the power dynamic. Who is it that you're talking to that you're trying to get to understand, hey, what you're doing is not appropriate and what you're doing is offensive and is hurting my culture or somebody else's culture if you're you know, speaking on the behalf of somebody else or not necessarily on the behalf, but in, in reference to something else. And then also considering what's at stake. Really for me, it was taking into consideration is this somebody that is going to be receptive to what I have to say. Um, and for me, the reason for taking kind of all of this into account is it becomes emotionally exhausting. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you in these spaces experience microaggressions left and right as people of color, as women, is in these, uh, for me, in STEM. And you experience these microaggressions, you experience all these isms, and then you're also experiencing cultural appropriation. And so being able to tackle all of that and engage in conversations with all of that is really exhausting. And so all that to say it is uncomfortable. I think engaging in these conversations is very necessary. Um, and for me, oftentimes it's worked best when it's a close friend, when it's a loved one, because I feel they are more receptive to it. And I think at the end of the day, when engaging in these conversations, it goes beyond what are you and I going to talk about today? How do you and I get on the same page as to, hey, what you are doing or the comment that you said or the information that you're consuming is incorrect? It's really how do we change our behavior? How do we change our approach and our view of cultures that aren't our own? Um, so, yeah, I think for me, engaging in all of that is really complex. Um, and it definitely goes on a case by case scenario. You know, sometimes when you know, the event or, or the appropriation itself is, I, I mean, there's extremes to it in those cases, as exhausting as it may be, there's just part of me that doesn't let me just turn around and like walk away from it. It's always, how do we engage? Because sometimes that engagement, there's a lot of power in numbers. How many times are you going to hear that what you're doing is wrong? And will then, will you, you know, try to understand it? Um, so yeah, for me, that's kind of how it's been when it comes to approaching someone and engaging in that conversation. Then I remember having uh, experienced a bit. Let's talk about voice and agency. Uh, 1970, I was just starting uh, work in basic sciences at UCSF. I graduated from Berkeley, but 
had been involved in the Chicano movement for a number of years was setting up La Clinica de la Raza in Oakland. So I get to UCSF and the first job I got was as an RA to a faculty wanted to study Latino health and had developed this giant question about all the use of folk healers, curanderos, yerbas, and everything else. Didn't ask once uh, about using medical services. Uh, and in fact, medical anthropologists concluded that because Latinos didn't go to the doctor, they didn't care about their health. They didn't want to go. And so I got into arguments with her about this. One day I said, well, look, Latinos do care about health. Well, that's not what the literature says. And I took her to Oakland to visit La Clinica de la Raza. And there were lines of people down the block and other volunteers were building things and putting up drywall and everything else. And I took her all around and she was shocked because that's not what the literature said. And in fact, uh, that led to my very first article, although I was second author, she first author, and the title. And this came out in, uh, it's a uh, medical student journal published by the American Medical Association. And the title was, Myth Destroyed. Chicanos do care about health because of all this appropriation. People thought, well, they didn't show up because they didn't care. It's all their problem. No, they didn't show up because you charged them it. They didn't have insurance. There's shortage and everything else. Uh, and I see that today with COVID because I, I hear, well, one of the reasons why do Latinos have a higher case rate and fatality? Oh, well, they're obese and have diabetes and their culture's all wrong. Plus they have immigrants. Immigrants bring it in from Mexico. Well, I have to push back against that narrative because that's not the case at all. Uh, the fact of obesity and diabetes only comes at the very end once you're in the ER. It, said it has nothing to do with the exposure because you're uh, checking out grocery stores or you're planting strawberries with a big quadrilla of farm workers, et cetera. But people constantly want to stereotype us, put us in a box, appropriate that. And with COVID, this appropriation can lead to unmet need and even increased deaths. So we're trying to get care and the PPE where it belongs, say with the uh, farm workers, with the meat packers, with the grocery store clerks, et cetera. So it, it kind of fits together. Yes, there's, and actually that's sort of, it makes me angry. So I do my research on it. That's kind of how I exercise my voice. I push back against it. And I have been doing that now for 50 years as an academic researcher. People still think almost all Latinos are recently arrived welfare seekers, that come here to steal somebody's job and use all the welfare, plus they're violent and criminal. Uh, I just, oh my God, look at the data. Please look at the data. So, yeah, yeah. So, but it energizes me, although at some times uh, I get to think, God, I wish I could do something else. It was a little bit more fun, but it certainly keeps me going. It helped me use my voice. I had found it by the time I started UCSF. It just kind of solidified. I'm using my voice in academic medical research. In regards to exercising your voice and agency, these can be very different experiences, whether you're doing it in person versus online. Angeles, are there any instances that you'd like to share with us? Um, I actually oh, can't think of a specific instance, but I think I really did want to touch on the online aspect. Um, Earlier, you were talking about uh, social media and kind of how that plays a role into, you know, cultural appropriation nowadays. Um, and I think to an extent it becomes trendy. Um, social media is such a powerful platform. And I think mm, oftentimes we don't realize that. Um, and so, for example, having something that is um, 
culturally appropriate to the culture and the amount of retweets or reposts or shares that it gets is really impactful because that information is getting spread to so many people so quickly um, that I think it, it works in one of two ways. Um, if the information is, you know, constructive and it is trying to, you know, combat the cultural appropriation that a lot of minority cultures experience, um, it gives us that platform to get this information and start having people talk about it in a, a quicker way. Um, on the downside, it has that same effect if the information is wrong or if the information is um, cultural appropriation. Um, and in that case, it almost, uh, I would say like reverse, not necessarily reverses, um, but does a lot of harm to the work that community members and scholars and activists and folks are doing to try to get the value of these cultures out there um, and, and to try to combat that cultural appropriation that continues to exist and those stereotypes. Um, and yeah, I think being for me online and kind of how I utilize that platform, uh, it used to be passive. It used to be fun. I mean, it still is, but it was, there wasn't much thought to it. I think I've come to a place where really being intentional about the information that we consume and also the information that we share, um, because it plays such a big role in these stereotypes and this cultural appropriation that we, you know, continue to experience. Um, and I think 2020 being as unique of a year as it has been, um, has definitely shown that. Um, and kind of how for our generation, um, and for a lot of folks nowadays, social media becomes kind of that uh, source of news. Um, I know earlier this summer, I was reading a thesis, and I can't for the life of me remember what school it was from, uh, but it was a master's thesis from a student that did some research on um, Twitter headlines and how much you know people were actually reading the article versus just reading the headline and really just getting their information from that. And like even with these parties, when I say cultural appropriation becomes trendy, it's through social media, that information is shared. Not only is it now, hey, word of mouth, there's a Cinco de Mayo party at this frat, now you see it all over social media and there's flyers and you have so many more people participating in something just because it's cool, just because it's in, just because it's Cinco de Mayo, without really realizing the harm that's being done. Um, mm -hmm. but, so let me, yeah. uh, but let me sort of expand it in that direction because uh, if you tell people not to do something, then they're going to do it. But I think what we could do, and the Cinco de Mayo is a case in point, think of it as a teaching moment. Uh, because uh, some people, most people are vaguely aware that somehow they don't celebrate Cinco de Mayo in Mexico. I mean, I was vaguely aware of that um, until I went to Mexico on Cinco de Mayo and was shocked. They don't celebrate it. My God. Uh, and you know, as young Chicano, we, we picked up Cinco de Mayo. I can show you the student newspaper at UCSF. We had big Semana de la Raza, but we had no idea why we celebrated Cinco de Mayo. Uh, but finally, as we were researching the Latino epidemiological paradox, and I started doing some historic demography and using the Spanish language newspapers published in California during the gold rush and civil war, 
that the story of the Cinco Mile plopped out. And now the teaching moment is Mexico in 1810, by the way, this is, um, we're celebrating Mexican and Central American independence. In 1810, Father Hidalgo, when he announced Mexico's independence from Spain, he also announced uh, racial equality in citizenship, the abolition of slavery, and continued uh, property rights for married women independent of their husband. The U.S. came along about 40 years later, took over California, uh, and Latinos were shocked that the U.S. Constitution permitted slavery, denied citizenship to non-whites, and when a woman married, she based, she suffered what was called legal death. She ceased to exist legally. The husband was going to make all the decisions. So when the American Civil War broke out and things were looking very bad for Abraham Lincoln and the Union, and suddenly the French go into Mexico to set up a, uh, an ally of the slave state confederacy. But the French were beaten at the Battle of Puebla. When news of that got here about three weeks later, on May 22nd, 1862, Latinos took to the streets to tell the public, here's where we stand on the issues of the Civil War and the French intervention, that we oppose slavery, we support freedom, we oppose white supremacy, we support racial equality, we oppose elitist plantation rule, we support government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and that is why we began celebrating as an act of civil rights and announcing here is where we stand in both of these wars. So I would like for us to take back Cinco de Mayo. There's no reason why shouldn't we celebrate, but let's understand why we're celebrating. And there are some of the same issues that we are fighting today. Racial equality, civil rights, who's in, who's out, how do we govern? Is it democracy or some sort of plantation rule? Same issues. We could turn Cinco de Mayo around to help us instead of going away from it because it was hurting us. And I'll have to admit, for many years, I didn't want to hear about it because all I thought of drunk fraternity boys, I don't think that anymore. We can now, this is a teaching moment. We appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Are there any final comments or final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? Angeles? Yeah, of course. I think just to piggyback off um, Dr. Hayes Bautista and really um, ending with this appreciation for our culture, I think these conversations um, oftentimes really require an empathetic stance um, from all the parties involved. And although that isn't always feasible, um, it's really, I think, um, great to see that these spaces are being filled by POC. Um, and as we have more folks going into higher education institutions and healthcare fields, um, and just more community members that are really having that agency and their voice um, develop and grow, um, I think it is our greatest tool in making sure that cultural appropriation, you know, doesn't continue to happen as our generations go on and that our experiences and our cultures are heard, are seen, and most importantly, are valued. I want to thank you all, of course, for having me on the podcast today. It was really great um, engaging in this conversation with you all. I think it's really important for many of us to continue to have these conversations as difficult and as uncomfortable as they are. So thank you so much for your comments, Brandy. Thank you so much for your comments, Angeles. That's it for this week, then. Let's think of teaching moments. These are times to teach, and not every moment has to be a teaching moment. Think of your agency. And remember, in terms of as we talk about Latino culture and everything else, I keep saying there are 60 million ways in this country 
to being Latino, Latinx, Chicano, Indo, Afro, Oriento, Ibero, and that's okay. Thank you all for listening, and please remember to subscribe if you haven't done so. This podcast was written and produced by Brandy Lopez and Giselle Hernandez. Our executive producers are Adriana Valdez and Seda Santiso Greenwood. Editing, as always, was provided by Elias Rodriguez. And the music this week was provided by the Mariachi de Uclatlán. Tune in for the next episode as we delve further into the topics of Latino health and culture. Bonito.